Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You can be seated as you're taking your seats. Again, I remind you, this is uh, the Sunday that oftentimes is called Transfiguration Sunday. The Lord Jesus Christ revealing himself on that mount to his disciples. And it's interesting, as you look in the gospel accounts, it's from that point that he turns his face towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. He's heading towards being the perfect sacrifice for our sins as the Lamb of God. And we're heading to that same place as we come to the table of the Lord today. So we're following a similar path that we might come afresh to this glorious sacrament and reminder, the sign and seal of the covenant of grace of all that Jesus has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do for our salvation. We're continuing our series Therefore, on communion. And as we do, today we come to some very practical questions. We come to two. When should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And when we celebrate, how should we celebrate? And the answer to the how question really comes in two parts. The answer to the how question, there's, a, there's an internal uh, answer. There, there, is the, there is the heart answer. How do, we, how do we come with our hearts? How are our hearts as we come to the table? And then there's the nut and bolt sort of answer, and we'll get there. But today I want us to focus on the when and the, the heart how. How do we come to the table with our hearts? And let me say at the front end, on questions like this, on any question, Our ultimate authority as Protestants, as historic Orthodox Protestants, our ultimate authority for faith and practice is none other than what? The Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, the Bible. We come today with these questions, but we don't answer these questions with just any old sort of answer of our own making. We come and we seek the answers of the Holy Scripture. Our ultimate authority is the Bible. And as Bible believers, as historic Orthodox Protestants, as those who would call themselves Reformed, as those who find themselves in an associate Reformed Presbyterian church, our ultimate authority is the Bible. Now that doesn't mean that we therefore think church history is of no avail that our tr- traditions are of no, no importance, that they, they have nothing to contribute to our thinking, or, or that our experiences have nothing to contribute to our thinking, or that logistical concerns have, should have no play in our thinking. But what we are saying that when we come even to practical questions, 
we come looking to the scriptures for answers. And so we're coming to the Bible. And we ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about when do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What does the Bible say about how do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What should be our, what should be our heart affections? Uh, we, we, we want to ask, what does the Bible say? And, and we want to ask, does the Bible answer those questions directly? And if it doesn't answer those questions directly, uh, does it answer them implicitly? Or in other words, can we make a sound inference from what we read in Scripture to know what the Scripture's answer would be? And I believe that we can, dear ones. So let's go to the Bible. And you've got several Bible passages there in your bulletin. We're going to be looking at several of them today. Not all of those that are listed there, but we're going to be looking at several. But let me also say that when we come to the Bible, we do not come as blank slates. We don't come to the Bible with these questions in our mind with, as blank slates, as those who have nothing about us that's, that's uh, uh, applying here. And what I really mean by that is we've already spent time in a beautiful, in a hard, in a mysterious, and yet in a good word. And we've already spent time, two weeks, in John chapter 6. We've already spent time with that great uh, sermon of the bread of life, the bread of life sermon of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I started us there on purpose because it's my understanding that we really can't answer the when and we really can't answer well the how before we've answered the who and the what of communion. Who? is at the table of the Lord. Well, as we saw from John chapter 6, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the host, and he calls people to come to this table. He's the host, and he's the meal. Who's at the table? The Lord Jesus Christ, but also graciously, he calls his disciples. If you have received sovereign grace, if you've received the gift of faith, if you know that you need Jesus and that, you're, that you want to come to Jesus, he's calling you and he's calling you to his table and so you come. And so who's at the table? The Lord Jesus Christ and those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are looking to him in faith, looking to him and him alone for their salvation. That's the who. And then we also answer the what question from John chapter 6. When we are having the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? And I said last time we're doing three things. We are first, we are remembering that is, we are meditating. We're meditating on all that our beloved has done, is doing, and will do for us. And specifically, we are meditating upon his great work on the cross, where he offered himself up as the, the, the Lamb of God without blemish, as the perfect sacrifice and all-sufficient sacrifice for all of our sins, Right? We're focusing and we're meditating upon that. And then secondly, we're, we're, when we're doing that, we are proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming that salvation is found in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in the one who offered himself in our place, who died in our place, was buried, and on the third day was resurrected. We're proclaiming the gospel. Now, we're proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, and we need to hear the gospel each and every day, right? 
and we're proclaiming the gospel to one another. And if there are unbelievers in our midst, they don't come to this table, they don't partake of the bread, they don't drink of the wine, but we want them to see through visible words, see and know the gospel. We're remembering, we're proclaiming. And then lastly, from last time, we're doing what? We are actually communing. We're communicating. We are connecting with our Lord and Savior. We are feeding upon Him who is spiritually present through faith in our hearts. We are having our faith strengthened. We are having our life in Jesus Christ deepened and fortified. Our connection with Him, our union and communion with Him uh, is, is experienced afresh. And so, when we think about that, that Jesus is calling us. Can you imagine that? He's calling us to his table. And then when we come to the table, we're given this grand opportunity to meditate upon all he's done for us. To proclaim the gospel and to actually connect with him and, and abide in him and him and us and have his life and that life be eternal and experience all that afresh. Can you imagine the, the glories of this table? And when we have answered those questions, and when we recognize all the wonderful things that are going on at the table, it's hard, or at least it should be, it is hard for the soul that loves Christ not to cry out, Sir, give us this bread always. Right? And that brings us then to the question, how often can we eat? How often can we dine with the one who loves us and the one whom we love? How often can we have this, I mean, Valentine's of all Valentine's meals? How often can we have it? If we love Jesus, we should be wanting it, right? We ask the when question. What does the Bible say? What does it teach about the frequency of the observation of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Is there a direct commandment? Thou shalt observe the Lord's Supper, and then you fill in the blank. Do you find that in the New Testament? Thou shalt celebrate the Lord's Supper annually. Thou shalt celebrate the Lord's Supper quarterly. Thou shalt separate the Lord's, uh, observe the Lord's Supper monthly or weekly or daily. Do we have a direct commandment? Well, if you know your New Testaments, the answer to that question is no. Well, then, are there New Testament examples which indicate how frequently the early church celebrated the sacrament? And the answer to that is yes. Let's look at three. Let's look at three. Let's begin with Acts chapter 2. Now, you remember what Acts chapter 2 is all about. It's the Feast of Pentecost. Believing Jews from all over the Mediterranean world have gathered into Jerusalem for the feast. And on that great day, our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ poured out his spirit upon those gathered. And thousands are converted and come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, right? Through the preaching, that amazing sermon of Peter. And they come to faith and they just stay there. I mean, they're so excited. All these thousands of new Christians, and they're there. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we begin to see what they do while there. And if you read several verses after that, you see they're doing this day after day after day after day. 
Okay, so they're doing this daily. Well, what is this? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, so the first thing that they devote themselves to is the teaching ministry of the Word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, koinonia, that sort of communion that we have with one another, as you know, as you gather together, as we part as we communicate with one another, as we love on one another, as we do all that we do together, the kononia, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and now notice, to thee, to thee, breaking of bread. Not to a breaking of bread, but the definitive article, the breaking of bread. And it's the same way with the prayers. Okay, so they devote themselves to the teaching ministry, preaching ministry of the word, to fellowship with one another in worship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see the early church gathering on a daily basis. And when they gather, they gather for the corporate purpose of worship. And that corporate purpose of worship includes four things. And one of those four things is what? The breaking of bread. Now we... Or, or, or most certainly, I think, to see in that phrase, communion, the Lord's Supper. Uh, so in the early, in the heady, in the excited days, the beginning days of the church, the church worshiped together daily. And a part of that worship was communion. And so I think we could say it's entirely appropriate if we were, if we were to gather daily. For worship. And in that daily gathering for worship, if we were to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Luke doesn't present this in a bad light. He presents it in a, in a good light. Well, that's what's happening at the very beginning of the birthing of the new, new covenant church. What happens after they're scattered? What happens when they have to go back to work? What happens when the church spreads from Jerusalem to other places? What happens when it goes throughout the Mediterranean world? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 20. That's the next text that you got. Acts chapter 20. If you, if you got your Bible, and if you were looking in your Bible, if you were looking in uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, you would be given the account of, of Paul preaching in Ephesus. And wherever the word's preached, it's always divisive. It always creates a stir to some, some, to some uh, regard. And it did in Ephesus. And I had a wonderful privilege years and years ago to go visit our uh, missionaries who at the time were in Turkey. And I went with one of, one of my brothers down to Ephesus and, and was able to sit in this amphitheater, the very amphitheater where, where Paul preached and ticked them all off and got them all mad because he was preaching against their idols, right? And the town clerk kind of saves the day calms them down. And that brings us to Acts 20. First verse. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, sent for the church. And after encouraging them, he, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Then you drop down to 6 and 7. Luke's recounting the story. He says, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. On the first day of the week, they're gathered together for worship, and Paul preached a very long sermon. I, won't, I don't want any of you complaining about the length of my sermons, you know. If you do, then I'll be tempted to preach until midnight and make sure none of you are sitting in the windows, okay, because we don't want anybody to fall out, all right. They're meeting for worship. Paul's a long-winded preacher, but notice as they're gathered on the Lord's Day. When's the Lord's Day? That's Sunday. That's a day of resurrection. They're meeting together weekly on the Lord's day and as a part of that of that worship that togetherness what do we see they're meeting together for what the breaking of bread we are gathered together to break bread and here Luke gives us this phrase to break bread and it it really is is really symbolizing all that they're doing for worship Now, it's possible that you could say, well, the breaking of bread here is that they're just having a fellowship meal. They're having a picnic lunch. Well, I don't doubt that they brought their picnic basket with them, too. But the breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper, to communion. And that most commentators would see that. And representative of them is the great Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, so long ago, said, they came together to break bread, that is, to celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That one instituted sign of breaking bread being put for all of the rest, meaning being put, symbolizing, talking about the entirety of worship. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. And the breaking of bread, not only the breaking of Christ's body for us to be a sacrifice for our sins is commemorated, but breaking, the breaking of Christ's body to us to be f- a food and feast for our souls is signified. In the primitive times, in the early times of the early church, Henry continues, it was the custom of many churches to receive the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, celebrating the memorial of Christ's death in the former and with that of his resurrection in the latter, and in both in concert in the solemn assembly to testify of their joint concurrence in the same faith and worship. They gather together weekly on the Lord's Day to break bread. Now, the worship service included more than that. The worship included more, as Paul's sermon makes clear, but it most definitely includes breaking bread. Well, that's one example. When the church has been scattered, it's going out through the world. We're past the early, heady days. It's getting established in normal routines. And what was the normal routine? To meet weekly, to worship in a part of worship, communion. That's one passage. Is there another one? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. One of the most famous passages of scripture in dealing with the Lord's Supper. Let's go there. As you go there, you need to remember Uh, the thrust of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to this congregation. This congregation doesn't have a stellar reputation. They do have a reputation, but the reputation is for what? Divisiveness, divisions, cliques, groups. Okay? You see that even in the first chapter when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
I never have understood why certain congregations want to name themselves Corinth. All right? You know, I don't know if I want to name myself after that congregation known for divisions. Uh, so they were known for that. And, and Paul, through the entirety of this epistle, he's, he's connecting to them on this problem of divisions. And that includes chapter 11. Notice verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I'm not here to butter you up. I'm not here to commend you. I'm here to get on to you. I do not commend you. Because when you come together, and when do they come together most likely? We'll see. It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, meaning when you come and assemble for worship, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that you who are genuine among you may be recognized. He does not want to commend them. He admonishes them. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I know, in essence, he's saying, I know you think you're coming to the Lord's Supper and that you are celebrating, but you really aren't and you're really not because you're profaning it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they've brought their picnic baskets, right? And when it's time for the supper, they just dive in. They go ahead. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Paul's button. It must mean that they had some wine there. F-Y-I. Because you can't get drunk on grape juice. Okay? Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Although in how they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Corinthian Christians were sinning, and Paul admonishes them for that, I want you to notice two things. First, the Lord's Supper, whether they're celebrating it correctly or not, at least in their minds, the Lord's Supper is what? A part of their corporate worship. And second, it wasn't that they included the Lord's Supper that Paul's all bothered by. It's not that they include the Lord's Supper in their worship service. He's speaking against their self-centered profaning of the Lord's Supper and one another, right? He continues, verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How often were the Corinthian Christians practicing communion? Or at least they thought they were practicing communion. 
The strongly implied answer, brothers and sisters, is every time they came together for worship. Now, while Paul's not prescribing weekly communion, brothers and sisters, the apostle is describing weekly communion. In addition, it's worth noting, amidst all the problems with communion that they were having, and how the celebration of the Lord's Supper even had become for them an occasion to sin, notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say, guys, y'all have so messed this up, you just need to stop. Stop having communion. He doesn't prohibit them. Nor does he say, you've so messed it up because you're doing it every week that, okay, maybe you can do it once a year or once a quarter. No, he doesn't prohibit it. He doesn't limit it. But he does say when you do gather together, then you need to take this meal very, very seriously. And you need to recognize one another. And there doesn't need to be division. Now the common thread throughout this passage is the example of frequent communion. More to the point, when our early Christian brothers and sisters thought about worship, a normal part of what they thought about was this meal. It was just a part of their view of worship. The Lord's Supper was included. The Lord's Supper was prominent. It was so prominent that he uses the breaking of bread to describe all of worship. Now, while there is no direct command that Christians celebrate communion frequently or or better as every time they gathered, the expectation does seem, does seem, the expectation of the church does seem that they anticipated they would. It would be part of what they did. So the simple question for us, living in 2021 in Huntersville, North Carolina, if the early church, as described in the New Testament, communed weekly together, why would we not? Let me, let me sharpen the point. Do we need to meditate on the cross less than they did? Do we need to proclaim the gospel less than they did? Do we need to have our faith strengthened less than they did? Do we need Jesus less than they did? Or is it that we want him less than they did? You see, brothers and sisters, I believe this is truly a matter of the heart. Jesus calls his people to his table to bless us with himself. Why would we not want to come? Why would we not want to respond to that invitation as often as we can? 
And that brings us to the how. Just a few moments on the how. How do we do this thing we call the Lord's Supper? Well, as we saw in John chapter 6, how we do it is in and by and through faith. God-given faith. Faith given to us by sovereign grace. Amen? We come in faith. And by faith, we meditate upon the cross. And as we do, it is my prayer that through the working of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are inflamed with love for Jesus. So my prayer is that we come in faith, and in coming in faith, we're coming in what? Love. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more angle, one more hard angle, one more angle to the hard answer to the how of communion. And we've already seen it in the words of 1 Corinthians, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. We come with love for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we come with love for whom? One another. One another. We come not divided. We come what? Unified. We come by faith or in faith. We come in love. We come in unity. We come thinking of others more highly than ourselves. How were the Corinthian Christians profaning the meal? By their divisions. By their self-centeredness. By their looking at the table individualistically. With really little or no thought to those around them. Especially little or no thought for those of another party, another clique, another group, or especially those in another social class. So when I come to the table, when you come to the table, one of the things that we should be asking ourselves is, are we at odds with somebody else? Are we at odds with a brother or sister in Christ? And let me tell you, one of the advantages of frequent communion is that it forces you to keep short accounts. Because if you know on this next Sunday, Christ has called me to his table and I should come by faith and in love and love for Christ and love for my brothers and sisters, then if I'm at odds, if I'm sideways with somebody else, you know what I better do? I better go confess my sin. I better go talk to that person. I better seek reconciliation because I am to come together with brothers and sisters to this table. Communion isn't an individualistic thing. We all need this meal. But let me take it one step further. We all need this meal. We all benefit from this meal if we come to this meal in faith and in love. But I am convinced each and every week there will be someone sitting in this congregation who will especially need the Lord's table on that Sunday. Their faith has been brought through the ringer. It's flagging. They have been beat up and bruised. The enemy has raged against them. They are tired. They are weary. They are hungry. They are thirsty. And Jesus has come to Maine. 
and I'm going to meet you sweetly in bread and in wine. And I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you and I'm going to make this promise afresh to you that the work that I began, I will complete it. And that I'll never leave you or forsake you. And that my grace is sufficient for all your battles. And as you go through the dark battles of your life, I'm not going to leave you. I'm with you. And here's my table to tell you that. Brothers and sisters, every week, if we celebrate weekly, there's going to be somebody who especially needs the table that week. And if I'm only thinking of the table in my own individualistic terms and not thinking about brothers and sisters, I'm going to fail to see that. And instead, I should be saying, I should be thinking, oh Lord, who is it? It could be me. It could be the one in front of me. It could be the one behind me. It could be the one beside me. Oh Lord, I want to put my knees under your table with them and I want them to be blessed. And guess what? Here's the wonderful, beautiful thing about this thing we call the church. If we are in union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? We are connected with one another. I'm in union with you, you're in union with me, and as we are, if I'm the one who's hurting that particular Sunday, and I come to this table, and it is sweet balm for my soul, and I taste of the forgiveness and the life of Christ, and if I taste something of the healing, guess what? That blesses you. That blesses you. Think of Paul's other metaphor that he uses in 1 Corinthians. We are the what? The body of Christ. And if you've got one part of you that's hurting, oh boy, the rest of you hurts, doesn't it? But when that part begins to feel some healing, what happens to the rest of you? It's a blessing. So now the simple question to ask. If I've got needy brothers and sisters, and maybe I'm that needy brother or sister, And if this is the family meal, and my family members need nourishment, and they need my participation with them in faith and in love and in unity, why wouldn't I want to put my my knees under this beautiful table of the Lord Jesus Christ? It really is a hard issue. Dear ones, that's something of the when. That's something of the how. May the Lord impress upon your heart and your soul right now what needs to be impressed. Let's go to him. Holy Father, by the outpouring of the Spirit, Upon the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, bring us to this table that we might meditate upon all that Jesus has done for us, that we might proclaim the gospel afresh to ourselves and to one another, that we might truly commune. And in this communion, that we might commune with Christ, but also with one another. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.